excited to you guys to be preaching from this book of Luke. We're going to be taking the next four Sundays and basically looking at um, the first two and a half chapters of Luke's gospel as we look at what it is about for the advent of Christ to be upon us. Luke is going to give us information from people that he has interviewed, information that he has gathered, and he's writing it down in his book for us. So what I'm going to do is, again, just pray one more time that God would speak and and use me as we look at the book of Luke, as we look at these first 25 verses of Luke chapter 1. So let's pray. Lord, our eyes have seen your salvation that you have given for all peoples. His name is Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus was a light of revelation to the Gentiles and Jews, I pray that he would be a light to us in this place as we proclaim the good news of Christ's first coming this morning. God, do this work in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So it begins. This is one of the more famous phrases uttered by King Theoden in the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, and it happens in the movie The Two Towers. So um, I don't know if we have any Lord of the Rings, just diehard buffs. My guess is that's probably a phrase that's not even actually in the books. Um, But in the movie, uh, there comes a point in time at the Battle of Helm's Deep where King Theoden is standing there, and the armies have converged on this one point, and as King Theoden is up in the high tower, and as he's looking over and surveying the landscape, and he sees the opposing army standing there before him at the, the ramparts of Helm's Deep, and as his army's on the out, and inside, he's got elves to help him, and all of the, the fellowship of the ring is there with him, and you can just see him just in his mind's eye crunching just all of the events that led him to that place and time, all the aligning of alliances and the ushering of his people towards this place and how he's been hearing about how attacks were coming and fighting off battles. And in that movie, the climax, the the crisis just comes barreling down and crunching down to that point. And King Theoden sums all of this up in the nutshell, the crisis, the, the climax of that point of the movie with that phrase, so it begins. So it begins is the tiniest of phrases, but the phrase in that movie is pregnant with significance. That one little phrase encapsulates the crisis, the the climax of the movie, and it is the same when we turn our attention to the start of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 25, in a very real sense, is the crescendo in God's plan of salvation history. In one fell swoop, Luke shows us the ushering out of one era by looking at the birth and the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and the ushering in of a new era by looking at Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 is an overlap of the ages that is unfurling before us Because in God's timing, he saw fit to fulfill what he had promised long ago. Now, to better understand what is going on in Luke chapter 1, as you should do with most books as you read, is to couch what you're looking at, couch what you're studying, couch what you're hearing as an audience, as Scripture is being preached, is to couch what you hear in context. 
So there are two major themes that show up across the pages of Luke. When you read from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 24, there are two themes that become two major points that Luke is trying to emphasize to us. He's stressing to us two things. One is this idea, this theme of salvation, and the other is this idea, this theme of promise and fulfillment. So when you read the book of Luke, if you go home this next week and you just work your way through it, you see that Luke is grabbing stories and he's orchestrating events, and as he's writing out his orderly account to Theophilus, he's not doing it just willy-nilly happenstance, well, a little bit of this story, a little bit of this parable, we'll sprinkle in a little bit of this miracle. He's doing it with purpose, and he's pulling together from eyewitness sources these bits and these pieces and these stories and these real-time things that really happened, and he orchestrates them to convey these two things. God is a God of salvation, that theme of salvation, and this idea, that theme of promise and fulfillment. So, you see this picked up in Luke 19.10, the end of the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? And Jesus says this at the end of his talking with Zacchaeus. The Son of Man came to do something. This is my whole point and this is my whole purpose. And Luke sums it up for us in one sentence, couched there at the end of the story of Zacchaeus. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save the lost. Salvation is the thematic center of Luke's gospel. You see that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It spikes high when you read Luke 15, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. You see it in Luke chapter 10 with the good Samaritan. You see it in Jesus talking about the beginning of his ministry, couching back to Isaiah 61 and grabbing this idea that I am the one that Isaiah was writing about, and I've come to bring good news to the poor. You see this idea of Jesus being a Savior, salvation coming to Israel, People are going to be able to enter truly and rightly into God's kingdom in the infancy narrative. When you see Mary give out her song of praise, you see Zechariah give out his song of praise, you see Simeon give out his song of praise, all of them keep going, redemption has come, salvation has come. The lost can now rightly be folded into God's kingdom because salvation has come. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to seek and save the lost. Luke portrays Jesus as the one who brings salvation to both Jew and Gentile in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Israel. Second, Luke demonstrates that in line with this, piggybacking off of that thematic center, that salvation is the center theme of Luke's gospel, is this idea of promise and fulfillment. And Luke demonstrates that in Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling, God fulfilled his salvation promises to his people. The beginning of Luke's gospel highlights the idea of promise and fulfillment by marking John the Baptist as the last of a long line of prophets. The prophets mark the era of promise, 
When you go back and you read the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, what you have are these people that keep popping up on the scene. You have people like Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and Moses and the kings and the judges. And you have books like Psalms and Proverbs and the writing prophets. And all of them are coming together and saying, listen, God is giving us a promise. God is giving us a promise. And these men were used by God in magnificent and extraordinary ways to come together and present this information that there's coming a time. God is promising salvation is going to come 100% for sure. And John the Baptist spikes up on the scene 400 years after the last writing prophet Malachi was saying something, and he is meant to show up on the scene, and we are meant to see in Luke's gospel that John isn't some loony that just comes out of nowhere, but John is actually somebody who is ushering out an era. He is flowing in the long line of prophets. He is closing out the era of promise. And what he's doing as God is closing out one era, he is simultaneously ushering in a new era, which is the Messianic age. Promise is being found and fulfilled in the one that he is foretelling, and that is Jesus Christ. The beginning of Luke's gospel highlights this idea of promise and fulfillment. Jesus marked the era of fulfillment. Jesus is the better prophet And his ministry is marked with a divine necessity as he ushers in the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And you see this language again, as you would expect it, because it's a theme pop up all over in Luke's gospel. Luke 1.1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. So Luke starts us out as we're about ready to look here, saying, listen, there's been a lot of things fulfilled, a lot of things accomplished among us. A lot of things that as you take your mind's eye and you cast back to the Old Testament, you see that a lot of these guys are saying, hey, God is promising this, and God is promising this, and God is promising this. And Luke stands here as he takes pen in the hand and he's writing his letter. What he is showing us is this, that all these things the Old Testament were promising, they have been fulfilled in our days. Jesus talks in this same language at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, verse 21. And he, Jesus, began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is he talking about? He's casting his mind's eye back to Isaiah 61. And he's saying, as he sits in the synagogue, he grabs the Isaiah scroll, he opens up to the right place, he reads this bit that everybody who is Jewish would know that this is talking about that coming Messiah this one who would come and bring the redemption and see the consolation of Israel, Jesus reads it and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In essence, what you've read and known for a very long time, you're staring in flesh at the one who's going to make this happen. At the end of Luke's gospel, 24, verse 20, 44, Jesus says this as he's talking to the disciples. This is post-crucifixion, resurrection, He's talking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And again, he's emphasizing that point. And Luke couches like bookmarks on his gospel in Luke 1.1 and Luke 24, verse 44, these two big bookends that show us that everything in between is meant to convey this theme that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. There was a shadow in the Old Testament. Jesus is the substance of that shadow. 
There were types in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the type. There was a promise in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And as these two themes move back and forth in Luke's gospel, they come together in this point in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. They come together giving us this main idea. God's time is the right time. God's time is the right time. These events that Luke is recording for us happen at the right time in the way that God had planned before the foundation of the world. These aren't happenstance. This isn't a a stroke of good luck. This isn't just mere fate. This is exactly playing out how God designed it to play out. God is bringing salvation to the world, and for Luke, the best way to convey this truth to his readers was to go all the way to the beginning of the Jesus story and start with the birth narrative of John the Baptist. So, with this in mind, we're going to turn our attention to the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth, and we're going to do it by looking at this first chapter in this way. We're going to look at Luke's introduction. We're going to look at the first four verses, just make a couple of observations there, make a couple of notes about what Luke is trying to convey to us in those first four verses. And then what we're going to see is this theme, God's time is the right time in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. We're going to look at verses 5 through 23 through, the, through that portion of Scripture. We're going to touch on five ways that in this bit of narrative that we see that Luke is trying to convey to us that God's time is the right time to usher in this era of promise and fulfillment. So, if you'll turn your attention to Luke chapter 1, those first four verses, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? So that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke starts off his letter in a manner that we would expect from a well-educated doctor. If you go read in Colossians chapter 4, Paul is writing a shout-out to some of his homies that have been traveling with him while he's in Colossians. And one of the men that he mentions is Luke. He says, and the beloved physician Luke. So Paul reveals to us that Luke was a doctor, and a very good doctor, a very well-educated doctor. He was a man who knew Greek, well-educated, knew how to trace down sources and learn bits of information and gather the facts. His Greek is impeccable and his prologue is formal and it's straightforward. He doesn't mince words and he gets just right down to the point. And just as the Apostle John gave us the purpose of his book in John chapter 20, so Luke gives us the purpose of his book book in Luke 1.4. He sums it all up. He says, here, everything that you read, 1-5 all the way to the end of this book, is meant to convey this purpose. Theophilus, I've gathered these facts and I'm giving them to you so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Theophilus was a recipient of the teaching of Christ and Luke wants him, through the reading of his gospel, to have an unshakable assurance that his faith truly rests on a solid foundation. He wants him to have a certainty. Not only does this certainty indicate an absolute sort of certainty, but it also carries the nuance of stability. Luke wanted Theophilus to know that the message about Jesus was reliable. And how does he do this? 
he says this, verse 3. He says, it seems good to me. It seemed good to me to take pen in hand, put some papyrus down. And to what? To write for you, Theophilus, an orderly account. Why? So Theophilus and subsequently any reader of this book that he is writing so that they may have a certainty concerning these things that you have been taught. Did he just do this off the cuff? And the answer is no. It wasn't like he just sat down and go, you know what, I've been hearing some people talking about this Jesus thing, and I guess I should probably just write something about it. That's not how he rolls. He says, what does he say there in verse, verse 3? He says, I have been following all things closely for some time past. Well, prove it, Luke. How have you been following things closely? And he says this, there are many who have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So before Luke took pen in hand and started writing, there were others who too were doing the same thing that he was doing, and they have actually written some things out. So Luke, in order to write correctly and not write falsely, has been gathering these things up, and as he's gathering up these compilations of narrative of the things that have been accomplished, he too is interviewing, talking, gathering facts, corroborating evidence, with those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So he's not just talking to the Johnny-come-latelys. He's not talking to the guy who just sort of like stumbled on the scene at the, at the ascension of Jesus and is like, what's going on around here? You know, he tracks down the people who have been around since the beginning, and he's talking to them. And not only was he talking and interviewing the people who were around from the beginning, but these people who were around from the beginning, these eyewitnesses were also the exact same ministers of the word who were delivering the things that they saw to the Christian community. So he's talking to people. The book of Luke was written about AD 60. Jesus' ministry was from about AD 30 to 33. We're talking about a 30-year period. People still alive. People Luke could walk up to and go, tell me what you saw, and he'll be like, I just remembered like it was yesterday. It's not hard for us to recall things that happened 30 years ago. And it's the same in Luke's day. He can go and talk to these people, and he's gathering these facts and gathering these bits of evidence. In short, the study of these sources from living eyewitnesses equipped Luke to be able to write an orderly account for Theophilus and establishes that Christianity is true and is capable of confirmation. So, with his introduction out of the way, Luke turns his attention to the task at hand. He says, I want you to know that you may be certain about the things concerning which you have been taught. And you can almost just see him just taking his pen in the hand, leaning back a little bit, maybe tapping his tongue with his, with his pen before he takes off. And he asks the question, well, where should I start? And the obvious place for Luke was, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Even sort of the proto-beginning, because he doesn't start like Matthew does with the birth of Jesus. What Luke does is start with sort of the pre-beginning, the, the ushering out and the ushering in, and he turns his attention to the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. This was the appropriate place for him to start. This foretelling of Zachariah's son was going to exhibit for his readers that God was again on the move. Now, the general mindset of the Jewish people at this point in history was one of expectancy. So I said this a little while ago, but think about this. So for the Jew of this day, about, about 60 years or so before Luke was actually writing, so about, you know, the end of King Herod's reign, there were Jews living in Israel. The, the oppressive thumb of Roman rule was upon them, and there was this general waft of expectancy in the air. 
For the Jew, the prophets had fallen asleep, and the Holy Spirit had stopped working among God's people. It had been about 400 years since anything had come to God's people through a prophet. It had been about the time of Malachi when he wrote down his prophecy would have been about the last time that God would have conveyed some truth through a man as that man, as a prophet, represented God to his people. The last blip on the history of God's people where God said, you speak on my behalf, was about 400 years prior to this event that he's about to write about through the pen of Malachi. And as a result, because of that 400 year of silence, Most people tended to look back to the period of the law and the prophets when God was active among his people, or they looked forward to the time of the messianic age when God would once again be active and fulfill his covenantal promises. God's visit to Zechariah marks for Luke the breaking in of the messianic age. And unbeknownst to Zechariah and all of God's people, they were sitting on the threshold of God's mighty plan to introduce the Messiah to the world. The 400 years of silence were about to break, and all of this was going to happen through the life of a righteous priestly couple. You can almost picture it in your mind's eye like... All the Old Testament is just building this intricate machine and each prophet and each priest and each king and each writer and each judge and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Noah and Samuel and all these guys as they were interacting on God's behalf to the people, they were just building this machine with a gear here or a pulley here or a, a wheel here and just through the ages and year upon year upon year, this machine just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and everyone's staring at it going, man, well, this thing goes off, it's going to be phenomenal. And then you get to Malachi and you look at the end of Malachi And the prophecy he gives about John the Baptist here we're going to see in a few moments sort of places the last piece on this big, ornate, gigantic, intricate, awesome machine, but no one pushes the button. Like it doesn't start, it doesn't take off. And in the mind's eye of the Jew, everyone's just sort of standing around going, we have the sweet thing here before us, but like, oh, how come it's not working? Or how come it's not moving? How come it's not doing its job? And then what we're supposed to see from Luke's gospel here in chapter 1 is when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and the angel Gabriel is talking to Zechariah, it is in this moment that God reaches down in the big machine that he's built through the prophets through the ages, he reaches over and presses start. And boom, salvation history takes off. Promise is done. Fulfillment is found in Christ. Truly, God's timing is perfect, and in Luke 1, verses 5 through 23, we can observe five different ways through Zechariah's life that God displays this perfect timing. So we're going to march through these verses here somewhat quickly and just see portions, five different snapshots that Luke is giving us that show us that God's timing is the right timing, that now is the time, according to Luke, that salvation history is supposed to be taking off. Now is the time for promise to be ushered out and fulfillment to come into place. So first we're going to see that God's time is the right time in Zechariah's life. And you can see that in verses 5 through 7. God's time is the right time in Zechariah's life. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Zechariah is of the division of Abijah, and Elizabeth came from a priestly lineage. What Luke is doing for us is couching for us and for his Gentile audience. You see him do this in the infancy narrative, that he takes real time and a real place, and he gives this Gentile audience sort of historical hooks to hang these events on. So you see this here, the, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. He talks about in the days of Herod, king of Judea. He does it at the beginning in birth, the, the birth of Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and he does it in Luke chapter 3 when he says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, and so on and so on. What he's not doing is just giving us a news feed because there was nothing else to do, but what he's doing is he's loving on the Gentile audience that he's writing to, and he goes, hey, remember, remember when Pontius Pilate was around? That's when John the Baptist was doing some stuff. Remember when Caesar Augustus was around? That's when the birth of John the Baptist, or when Jesus was taking place. And so he's loving on his audience, and he's doing the same thing here. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now that's important because there were 24 divisions of priests that would serve the temple, and they would only come to the temple to serve two times a year for a one-week period. There were about 18,000 priests. And so if you take 18,000 divided by 24, you get roughly about 750 or so in that area. So two times a year for about a week period, 750 priests of whatever division they aligned themselves with, they would show up to do temple duties in Jerusalem. So not only was Zechariah of the division of Abijah, he and his wife, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So it was really like a double blessing. A priest was supposed to marry someone who was a godly woman, an Israelite, but he was also had a double portion, a double blessing, if this woman came from a priestly family. So what you have is a priestly lineage on Elizabeth's side and a priestly lineage on Zechariah's side. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They had no child. Elizabeth was barren. They both were old. And this fact is meant to be conveyed to us so that we can see something that's going on here. Because in this day, the mindset, which isn't entirely right, but nonetheless it was the mindset of this day, was if you were truly righteous before God and if you were truly blameless before God, you would have thousands of kids. Like there would just be kids everywhere. God giving you a bunch of kids was exhibit A for God's blessing truly being upon you. If you had a barren womb, it was this. God's hand is not upon you. You're not actually being blessed by God. And this was the mindset of the day. And you can sort of see this language coming about in Luke 125, where Elizabeth says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. People would step back and go, all right, I see a lot of devout actions, but the fact that Elizabeth doesn't have any child is proof positive that she's really not as righteous as we would like her, she would like us to think she is. That's not right thinking, but it was thinking of that day nonetheless. 
And so this fact is highlighted by Luke, and it becomes for us ground zero for God's glory to be manifested in this story. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. When this kind of truth comes about about a couple, it usually happens because God is about to do something great in this family. So you can think about Sarah. Abraham and Sarah was barren, and then she produced a child who became great. Isaac and Rebekah, barren, but had a child. Rachel, barren, but had a child. Samson's mother, barren, but had a child. Hannah, barren, but had a child. Samuel. And the mention of Zechariah and Elizabeth's childlessness and their being past childbearing age points to the human impossibility of the coming events that Luke is about to give us and heightens the miraculous character of God's intervention in their son's birth. Because what we are not reading here is this, is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both 25, newly married, and as fertile as the day is long. Because then if they had a child, everyone would be like, well, of course they had a child. They're newly married and they're both like 25, why would they not have a child? But Luke highlights verse 7 for us and it becomes this tenor and tone of these next several verses that follows because we're meant to read this and see that God is the one who is at work here. It wasn't Zechariah and Elizabeth who were ushering in this age of promise and fulfillment. It was God who was doing this. And it really goes to highlight this for us. There may be circumstances that are out of your control or out of my control because I can guarantee you that Elizabeth and Zechariah were praying for a child in their day. They wanted that, that sort of that manifest evidence that God's blessing was upon them, that the righteousness and the blamelessness that they walked in could be manifest amongst their friends through childbearing. But it didn't happen. It could have been a potential frustrating circumstance for their life just as there might be frustrating circumstances in your life that are seemingly out of control, yet just as in their life, as in your life, God is orchestrating this frustrating circumstance, not because you have sinned and suffering has come to you, but there is some sort of suffering in your life now because God is orchestrating for you now, a la 1 Peter, he talks about this a lot, Because God is going to use this example of suffering in your life to become the very ground zero for His glory. An obstacle seemingly insurmountable may be in your life, yet it is there for the sole purpose of God being magnified and God being worshipped. So when He acts in your life, it will be obvious to whom the glory belongs. The purpose in this season of life isn't for you to step back and go, I can't stand the fact that this thing is happening in my life, and then you somehow extend a middle finger to God and say, God, you have failed me. But that purpose of suffering in your life now is so that you can see that this is a place for you to not be mad at God or extend the middle finger to God, but is a place for you to go, I can give God glory in this instance by living out my life faithfully here. It is designed for us, times of suffering, seasons of doubt, to not know what is going on in our life, to draw us closer to God. And then that season of life becomes the fertile ground for worship. It becomes the springboard for boasting in God. Second, verses 8 through 10. 
Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. As a priest, Zechariah would serve only two weeks a year. And there were too many priests, as I said, about 18,000 total. And there were not enough duties for them to perform. So when you divide that down to 750, and then those 750 descend on Jerusalem at the temple, there were only a handful of duties. And so the question then became, well, who gets to do what? And so what they would do is draw lots for those weeks of service to get to see who would actually get to do something. And once you were chosen by lot to do something, you never could do it again. So they would draw lots to see who did what job. And it was here... Zachariah serving as he had many times before, but something is different about this time. He was an old man. He has done this job forever. He has done this twice a year, week at a time, week at a time, year after year after year after year after year. And as an old man in old age, soon heading towards retirement, God ordains the circumstances of his life for he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this wasn't just luck. I love this verse here. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This didn't just happen by accident to Zechariah. Just as Achan wasn't accidentally found out by Lot in the Joshua story. Just as Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 wasn't found out to be the one who was running from God by Lot in Jonah chapter 1. So it is here, Zechariah didn't just sort of just stumble into this. He wasn't the wrong man at the place. God, out of 18,000, had narrowed it down to 750. And out of 750, at the right time, in the morning or evening prayer, the priest was to come in and alter, offer up prayers at the altar of incense so as the sweet smelling aroma of the incense went up and wafted up to heaven it was supposed to be a outward expression of prayers going up to heaven going up to god and there is zachariah chosen by lot for this job for this place for this time exactly as god wanted him to narrowed it all the way down to him it wasn't luck chance or fate it was god's providential leading to get him where he wanted why? Because God's time is the right time in Zechariah's work. In the dullness of life, God can and does break through. In the ordinary, God does the extraordinary. Zechariah was faithful in the little things. He had served in this position countless times before, but it would be this time of service at the temple that God uses for his glory. His life was marked by righteousness and blamelessness, and he didn't neglect what was right in the moment. And it is here in the simple faithfulness of this priest that God orchestrates the details. Because what could have happened? I mean, let's think about If he, as a godly man, righteous and blameless, and his wife, a godly woman, righteous and blameless, what they could have done is said, God, we've been serving you forever. We have no child. We obey the commands, but we have no child. And year after year, if they would have could have let the root of bitterness burrow into their hearts and say, God, we've done this for you, but look how you have not repaid us. Look how you've not helped us. And if they would have let that heart of bitterness take root and burrow down deep, what they could have done and said, until we see what we want, until we get what we think we need, now we're doing nothing. And often that's how we operate. 
what we do is go, God, because you're allowing this in my life, I'm going no further until I can figure out what's coming down the road. And Zechariah doesn't exhibit that for us. He doesn't display that for us. What he shows us is this, that he is faithful in the small things every day, step by step, even though there's some sort of cloud of gloom that could be hanging over him because his wife is barren and they are old and they are without children. He doesn't let that fact negate the fact that he is going to be faithful in the moment. Good challenge for us. This is an excellent challenge for us. We are not to neglect the things we know we ought to be doing now because we don't know what's coming then. And Zechariah displays this in a very healthy fashion. Third, God's time is the right time to answer Zechariah's prayer. The prayer of this righteous man is going to be answered, and that's what we see in verses 11 through 13. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar, and Zechariah was troubled and Fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The prayer of this righteous man is going to be answered. Zechariah is an old man, and it can be presumed that he prayed for a son with his wife for many years. And unbeknown to him, the answer was always no. No. The womb is barren. No, you're not having a child. No, you're not having a child. No, you're not having a child. You're... 25, 30, 35, 40, 40, just no. Always prayer. We want a child. God, please help us. No, God, right now, no. God, please, right now has to be the right time. No, Zachariah, it's not. Why? Because God was allowing this to be in his life because God had a plan for him on the day when he was going to be chosen by lot to be standing at the altar of incense. God was going to dispatch the head of his angels to deliver a message on behalf of God to Zechariah that now is the time for your prayer to be answered. And it was going to be answered in a way that was more rich and extravagant than Zechariah and Elizabeth could ever have dreamed. More extravagant, exceedingly, abundantly more than they ever could have imagined, is Paul's phrasing in Ephesians chapter 3. God's will is accomplished through our prayers. And we see Zechariah standing at the altar of incense, praying again. As a priest, most likely praying for the redemption of Israel. Also potentially, possibly praying once again for a son. And God is going to answer this prayer. Fourth, God's time is the right time in salvation history. Look at verses 14 through 17. I love this. He says, listen, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. Well, of course he's going to have joy and gladness, because his prayer has finally been answered. But, not, but even more so, this son that Elizabeth is going to bear is going to have joy and gladness, but many others are going to rejoice at his birth. And so the, the nuance of this language is this, is that as Zechariah is standing at the altar of incense, he could potentially be praying for the redemption of Israel. God, please, the oppressive thumb of the Romans is upon us. Send your Messiah who will come and bring redemption and salvation to Israel. And maybe Possibly also he was praying for a son, and what God does is grabs both of these prayers and funnels them down and says, listen, I'm answering your prayer. You're going to have a son, but get this, this son is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah answering the prayer that God, that God would bring redemption to Israel. I mean, can you, one, he's already freaked out because you see that in verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled. Well, of course he was troubled. 
He goes into the temple and he's just expecting to offer up incense and prayer. And all of a sudden, like one of the flaming ones, that's what angels means. It's a messenger. It's this idea that he is just robust and reflecting the full glory of God just shows up. Well, of course he's going to be troubled. And he's a little afraid, but the angel says, listen, man, don't, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you some good news here. Your prayer's been answered. There's going to be a lot of joy and gladness in the Zechariah Elizabeth household, but this, even more so, many will rejoice at his birth. Why? For he is going to be great before the Lord. And this goes back to verse 7. Those places and those instances in Old Testament history where a womb was barren, but God came and did something in that womb, it only goes to magnify that something great comes from that person. Just as Elijah was great, so John is going to be a great. Just as Elijah was filled with the Spirit, so John is going to be filled with the Spirit. And what's more, the angel goes all the way back to Malachi and pulls language from this prophet concerning a future messenger of the Lord and applies it directly to John. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, when Zechariah would have heard that, what he would not have been was like, I guess that's cool. He wouldn't have reacted that way. Because Zechariah is a priest, and he knows his Old Testament. And he would know that that is language straight ripped out of Malachi. He would know that Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi is saying, listen, there's going to be this, like the super prophet, the prophet's prophet, this prophet that is great and grand and wonderful and far beyond any other prophets. He's the messenger of the covenant. But before he comes, there's going to be a forerunner. This one last prophet is going to be great in his own rights, who's going to come and lead the way to this messenger of the covenant. And he would also know Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Zechariah would have been on top of it enough to know as he was standing there listening to Gabriel, talking to him, going, uh, something big is happening here. The son that God is giving me truly is going to bring great joy and gladness in my life because God is answering that prayer, but more so, many people will rejoice because when John the Baptist comes full-blown on the scene, they are going to see what the angel just told me, that he is the forerunner. John, my son, is going to be the one grabbing those bits out of Malachi. People are going to see uh, this is something unique. John is fulfilling what Malachi was talking about. Lastly and finally, we'll head to a time of close. God's time is the right time because it originates from God. So how does Zechariah respond to this? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel answered him, well, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So you see Zechariah in unbelief say this, okay, great, yeah, Malachi, prophecy, cool stuff about my son, but how, how in the world is this going to happen? Bit of the same response that Abraham had, but in a different spirit. You can tell it's a different spirit, this asking of this question, because Gabriel says, here's what's going to happen to you since you didn't believe, you're going to be mute until the day that your son is born. But he presents to, to 
Gabriel, the sort of this emphatic I, well, listen, well, I am old. What are you going to do about that? My wife is a very judicious way of saying old. My wife is advanced in years. How are you going to deal with that? And Gabriel responds with his own emphatic I. Well, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent, sent by who? God, to speak to you on behalf of God to bring you this good news. See, this wasn't just Gabriel going rogue. This wasn't just Gabriel sitting down behind God's executive desk, pulling up God's MacBook Pro, looking at God's iCal and going, okay, let's see, on Friday he plans to dispatch me to tell Zacharias some stuff, but I'm going to do this on Monday. Then he scurries off down there and gets down there and just tries to sneak something in before God can do it. That's not the way he operates. Gabriel's saying, listen, man, God told me this. And when God says, God does. When God has a purpose, God has the omnipotence to be able to carry out what he does. So don't stand there and give me sort of your emphatic eye. Well, I am old. Well, listen to this. I am Gabriel, and I'm telling you what God has said. And that's good news for us, because how often do I react like Zechariah? God, you're omnipotent. Do your work. And he shows up, and I'm going to do this. And I'm like, sure you are, God. Sure you are. And here, Zechariah is a witness for us, but in a sense, he's a bad witness because he witnesses to us unbelief, and we ought not to be like Zechariah. We ought to come to this point where we go, man, because God has said, God will do. And what is the glorious part? Look down at verse 24. Actually, the last part of verse 20 says this, and, or verse 20, and behold, you will be silent because you were unfaithful. You will be able, unable to speak because you were unfaithful and not trusting what I've said until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And what happens? Gabriel leaves. Zechariah finished out his time of service. Verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. What God said came to pass. What God said came to pass. And so what you have is Elizabeth conceiving. What Gabriel says is going to happen. And with this good news... God closes out one era of salvation history while simultaneously ushering in a new era. And Luke starts here in this gospel because hope starts here with the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. This is the season of Advent. Before the Messiah, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the Son is going, man is going to come and seek and save the lost in God's time and His ordering. He will not show up on the scene until the forerunner shows up on the scene. And Luke is conveying to us this simple point, that the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist is extremely good news. Because if he's on the scene, that means Jesus is poking his head right around the corner. And that's what we're meant to read and understand from these first 25 verses of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1.